Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermon. You remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man, and when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, If I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over hedge and ditch, but what I will get at him. So must we do, brethren. We must have Christ in all our discourses, whatever else is in or not in them. There ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save his soul. Take care that it is so when you are called to preach before Her Majesty the Queen. And if you have to preach to scrubwomen or chairmen, still always take care that there is the real gospel in every sermon. I have heard of a young man asking, when he was going to preach in a certain place, what kind of church is it? What do the people believe? What is their doctrinal view? I will tell you how to avoid the necessity of such a question as that. Preach Jesus Christ to them, and if that does not suit their doctrinal views, then preach Jesus Christ the next Sunday you go, and do the same the next Sabbath, and the next, and the next, and never preach anything else. Those who do not like Jesus Christ must have him preached to them till they do like him, for they are the very people who need him most. Recollect that all the tradesmen in the world say that they can sell their goods when there is a demand for them. But our goods create as well as supply the demands. We preach Jesus Christ to those who want him, and we also preach him to those who do not want him. And we keep on preaching Christ until we make them feel that they do want him and cannot do without him. Seventhly, brethren, it is my firm conviction that those sermons are most likely to convert men that really appeal to their hearts, not those that are fired over their heads or that are aimed only at their intellects. I am sorry to say that I know some preachers who will never do much good in the world. They are good men, they have plenty of ability, they can speak well, and they have a good deal of shrewdness, but somehow or other there is a very sad omission in their nature, for to anyone who knows them it is quite evident that they have not any heart. I know one or two men who are as dry as leather. If you were to hang them up on the wall as you do a piece of seaweed to tell what kind of weather it is to be, they would be no guide to you, for scarcely any weather would affect them. But I also know some men who are the very reverse of these brethren. They are not likely to win souls, for they are themselves so flippant, so frivolous and foolish there is nothing serious about them, nothing to show that they are living in earnest. I cannot find any traces of a soul in them. They are too shallow to contain one. It could not live 
in the inch or two of water that is all that they hold. They appear to have been made without any soul, so they cannot do any good in preaching the gospel. You must have souls, brothers, if you are to look after your brother's souls. Depend upon that, as you must have a heart if you are to reach your brother's heart. Here is another kind of man, one who cannot weep over sinners. What is the good of him in the ministry? He never did weep over men in his life. He never agonized before God on their behalf. He never said with Jeremiah, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. I know a brother like this. In a meeting of ministers after we had been confessing our shortcomings, he said that he was very much ashamed of us all. Well, no doubt, we ought to have been more ashamed of ourselves than we were. But he told us that if we had truly meant what we had said in our confessions to God, we were a disgrace to the ministry. Perhaps we were. He said he was not like that. So far as he knew, he never preached a sermon without feeling that it was the best he could preach, and he did not know that he could do any better than he had done. He was a man who always studied just so many hours every day, always prayed exactly so many minutes, always preached a certain length of time. In fact, he was the most regular man I ever knew. When I heard him talk as he had done to us, I asked myself, what does his ministry show as the result of this perfect way of doing things? Why, it did not show anything at all that was satisfactory. He has great gifts of dispersion, for if he goes to a full chapel, he soon empties it. Yet he is, I believe, a good man in his way. I could wish that his clock would sometimes stop or strike in the middle of the half hour, or that something extraordinary might happen to him, because some good might come of it. But he is so regular and so ordinary that there is no hope of his doing anything. The fault with him is that he has not any fault. You will notice, brethren, that preachers who have no faults have no excellencies either. So try to avoid the flat, dead level, and everything else that makes people less likely to be converted. Coming back to that matter of the possession of a heart of which I was speaking, I asked a young girl who came lately to join the church, Have you a good heart? She replied, Yes, sir, I have. Have you thought over that question? Have you not an evil heart? Oh, yes, she answered. Well, I said, how do you, your two answers agree? Why, well, responded the girl, I know that I have a good heart because God has given me a new heart and a right spirit. And I also know that I have an evil heart for I often find it fighting against my new heart. She was right, and I had sooner feel that a minister had two hearts than that he had none at all. It must be heart work with you, brethren, far more than head work, if you are to win many souls. Amidst all your studies, mind that you never let your spiritual life get dry. There is no necessity that it should, although much study has had that effect. My dear brethren, the tutors will bear me witness that there is a very drying influence about Latin and Greek and Hebrew. The couplet is true. Hebrew roots as known the most to flourish best on barren ground. There is a very drying influence in the classics 
and there is a very drying influence in mathematics, and you may get absorbed in any science till your heart is gone. Do not let that be the case with any of you, so that people should have to say of you, He knows much more than he did when he first came amongst us, but he has not as much spirituality as he used to have. Take care that it is never so. Do not be satisfied with merely polishing up your grates, but stir the fire in your heart and get your own soul all aflame with love to Christ, or else you will not be likely to be greatly used in the winning of souls of others. Lastly, brethren, I think those sermons that have been prayed over are the most likely to convert people. I mean those discourses that have had much real prayer offered over them, both in the preparation and the delivery, for there is much so-called prayer that is only playing at praying. I rode some time ago with a man who professes to work wonderful cures by the acids of a certain wood. After he had told me about his marvelous remedy, I asked him, What is there in that to effect such cures as you profess to have wrought? Oh, he answered, It is the way in which I prepare it, much more than the stuff itself. That is the secret of its curative properties. I rub it as hard as ever I can for a long while, and I have so much vital electricity in me that I put my very life into it. Well, well, he was only a quack, yet we may learn a lesson even from him, for the way to make sermons is to work vital electricity into them, putting your own life and the very life of God into them by earnest prayer. The difference between a sermon that has been prayed over and one that has been prepared and preached by a prayerless man is like the difference that Mr. Ferguson suggested in his prayer when he referred to the high priest before and after his anointing. You must anoint your sermons, brethren, and you cannot do it except by much private communication with God. May the Holy Spirit anoint every one of you and richly bless you in winning souls. For our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, Amen. Chapter 5, page 38 Obstacles to Soul Winning I have spoken to you, brethren, at different times about soul winning, that most royal employment. May you all become, in this sense, mighty hunters before the Lord in bringing many sinners to the Savior. I want at this time to say a few words upon the obstacles that lie in our path as we seek to win souls for Christ. There are very many, and I cannot attempt to make a complete catalog of them, but the first and one of the most difficult is, doubtless, the indifference and lethargy of sinners. All men are not alike indifferent. In fact, there are some persons who seem to have a sort of religious instinct which influences them for good long before they have any real love to spiritual things. But there are districts, especially rural districts, where indifference prevails and the same state of things exists in various parts of London. It is not infidelity. The people do not care enough about religion even to oppose it. They are not concerned as to what you preach or where you preach, for they have no interest whatever in the matter. They have no thought of God. They care nothing about Him or His service. They only use His name in profanity. 
I have often noticed that any place where there is little business doing is bad for religious effort. Among the Negroes of Jamaica, whenever they have had not much work, there was little prosperity in the churches. I could indicate districts not far from here where business is slack, and there you will find that there is very little good being done. All along the valley of the Thames there are places where a man might preach his heart out and kill himself, but there is little or nothing of good being accomplished in those regions, just as there is no active business life there. Now, whenever you meet with indifference, as you may do, my dear brethren, in the place where you go to preach, indifference affecting your own people and even your own deacons, seeming to be tinged with it, what are you to do? Well, your only hope of overcoming it is to be doubly in earnest yourself. Keep your own zeal all alive. Let it be even remnant, burning, blazing, all-consuming. Stir the people up somehow, and if all your earnestness seems to be in vain, still blaze and burn. And if that has no effect upon your hearers, go elsewhere as the Lord may direct you. This indifference or lethargy that possesses the minds of some men is very likely to have an evil influence upon our preaching. But we must strive and struggle against it and try to wake both ourselves and our hearers up. I would far rather have a man in earnest, intense opposer of the gospel than have him careless and indifferent. You cannot do much with a man if he will not speak about religion or will not come to hear what you have to say concerning the things of God. You might as well have him a downright infidel like a very leviathan covered with scales of blasphemy as to have him a mere earthworm wiggling away out of reach. Another very great obstacle to soul winning is unbelief. You know that it is written of the Lord Jesus when in his own country that he had not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This evil exists in all unregenerate hearts, but in some men it takes a very pronounced form. They do think about religion, but they do not believe in the truth of God which we preach to them. Their opinion is to them more weighty, more worthy of belief than God's inspired declarations. They will not accept anything that is revealed in the scriptures. These people are very hard to influence, but I would warn you not to fight them with their own weapons. I do not believe that infidels ever are won by argument, or if so, it very seldom happens. The argument that convinces men of the reality of religion is that which they gather from the holiness and earnestness of those who profess to be Christ's followers. As a rule, they barricade their minds against the assaults of reason, and if we give our pulpits over to arguing with them, we shall often be doing more harm than good. In all probability, only a very small portion of our audience will understand what we are talking about, and while we are trying to do them good, most likely we shall be teaching infidelity to others who do not know anything about such things, and the first knowledge they ever have of certain heresies will have come to them from our lips. Possibly our refutation of the error may not have been perfect, and many a young mind may have been tinctured with unbelief 
to listening to our attempted exposure of it. I believe that you will rout unbelief by your faith rather than by your reason, by your belief and your acting up to your conviction of the truth you will do more good than by any argument, however strong it may be. There is a friend who sits to hear me generally every Sabbath. What do you think? He said to me one day. You are my only link with better things. But you are an awful man in my estimation, for you have not the slightest sympathy with me. I replied, No, I have not. Or rather, I have not the least sympathy with your unbelief. That makes me cling to you, for I fear that I shall always remain as I am. But when I see your calm face and perceive how God blesses you in exercising it and know what you accomplish through the power of that faith, I say to myself, Jack, you are a fool. I said to him, You are quite right in that verdict. And the sooner you come to my way of thinking, the better, for nobody can be a bigger fool than the man who does not believe in God. One of these days I expect to see him converted. There is a continual battle between us, but I never answer one of his arguments. I said to him once, If you believe that I am a liar, you are free to think so if you like. But I testify what I do know and state what I have seen and tasted and handled and felt, and you ought to believe my testimony, for I have no possible object to serve in deceiving you. That man would have beaten me long ago if I had fired at him with the paper pellets of reason. I advise you to fight unbelief with belief, falsehood with the truth, and never to cut and pare down the gospel to try to make it fit in with the follies and fancies of men. A third obstacle in the way of winning souls is that fatal delay which men so often make. I do not know whether this evil is not on the whole more widespread and mischievous than the indifference and lethargy and unbelief of which I have spoken. Many a man says to us what Felix said to Paul, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Such an individual gets into the border country. He seems to be within a few steps of Emmanuel's land, and yet he parries our home thrusts and puts us off by saying, Yes, I will think the matter over. It shall not be long before I decide. There is nothing like pressing men for a speedy decision in getting them to settle at once this all-important question. Never mind if they do find fault with your teaching. It is always right to preach what God says, and His word is, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This leads me to mention another obstacle to soul winning, which is the same thing in another form, that is, carnal security. Many men fancy that they are quite safe, They have not really tested the foundation on which they are building to see that it is sound and firm, but they suppose that all is well. If they are not good Christians, they can at least say that they are rather better than some who are Christians or who call themselves by that name. And if there is anything lacking in them, they can at any time put on the finishing touch and make themselves fit for God's presence. Thus, they have no fear or if they do fear at all, they do not live in constant dread of that eternal destruction 
from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, which will certainly be their portion unless they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Against these people we ought to thunder day and night. Let us plainly proclaim to them that the unbelieving sinner is condemned already, and that he is certain to perish everlastingly if he does not trust in Christ. We ought so to preach as to make every sinner tremble in his seat, and if he will not come to the Savior, he ought at least to have a hard time of it while he stops away from him. I am afraid that we sometimes preach smooth things, too soothing and agreeable, and that we do not set before men their real danger as we should, and we shun in this respect to declare all the counsel of God, part at least of the responsibility of their ruin will lie at our door. Another obstacle to soul winning is despair. The pendulum swings first one way and then the other, and the man who yesterday had no fear today has no hope. There are thousands who have heard the gospel and yet live in a kind of despair of its power being ever exerted upon them. Perhaps they have been brought up among people who taught them that the work of salvation was something of God altogether apart from the sinner. And so they say that if they are to be saved, they will be saved. You know that this teaching contains a great truth, and yet if it is left by itself without qualification, it is a horrible falsehood. It is fatalism, not predestination, that makes men talk as if there is nothing whatever for them to do, or that there is nothing that they can do. There is no likelihood of anyone being saved while he gives you this as his only hope. If salvation is for me, it will come to me in due time. You may meet with people who talk thus, and when you have said all you can, they will remain as if they were cased in steel, with no sense of responsibility, because there is no hope awakened in their spirit. Oh, if they would but hope that they might receive mercy by asking for it, and so be led to cast their guilty souls on Christ, what a blessing it would be. Let us preach full and free salvation to all who trust in Jesus, so that we may, if possible, reach these people. If the carnally secure should be tempted to presume, some who are quietly despairing may pluck up heart and hope and may venture to come to Christ. No doubt a great obstacle to soul winning is the love of sin. Sin lieth at the door. There are many men who never get saved because of some sweet lust. It may be that they are living in fornication. I remember well the case of a man of whom I thought that he would certainly come to Christ. He was fully aware of the power of the gospel and seemed to be impressed under the preaching of the word. But I found out that he had become entangled with a woman who was not his wife and that he was still living in sin while professing to be seeking the Savior. When I heard that, I could easily understand how it was that he could not obtain peace. Whatever tenderness of heart he may have felt, there was this woman always holding him in the bondage of sin. There are some men who are guilty of dishonest transactions in business. You will not see them saved all the while they continue to act so. If they will not give up that trickery, they cannot be saved. There are others who are drinking to excess. 
People who drink, you know, are very often easily affected under our preaching. They have a watery eye. Their drinking has made them soft-headed, and there is a maudlin kind of sensitiveness in them. But as long as a man clings to the cup of devils, he will not be likely to come to Christ. With others, it is some secret sin or some hidden lust that is the great difficulty. One says that he cannot help flying into a passion. Another declares that he cannot give up getting drunk, while another laments that he cannot find peace, whereas the root of the mischief is that there is a harlot who stands in his way. In all these cases, we have only to keep on preaching the truth and God will help us to aim the arrow at the joint in the sinner's harness. Another obstacle is put in our way by men's self-righteousness. They have not committed any of these sins I have mentioned. They have kept all the commandments from their youth up. What lack they yet? There is no room for Christ in a full heart. And when a man is clothed from head to foot with his own righteousness, he has no need of the righteousness of Christ. At least he is not conscious of his need, and if the gospel does not convince him of it, Moses must come with the law and show him what his true state is. That is the real difficulty in many cases. The man does not come to Christ because he is not conscious that he is lost, and he does not ask to be lifted up because he does not know that he is a fallen creature. He does not feel that he has any need of divine mercy or forgiveness, and therefore he does not seek it. Once more, there are some with whom all we have to say has no effect because of their utter worldliness. This worldliness takes two shapes. In the poor, it is the result of grinding poverty. When a man has scarcely enough bread to eat, and hardly knows how to get clothes to put on, and when at home he hears the cries of his little children, and looks into the face of his overworked wife, we must preach very wonderfully if we are to secure his attention and make him think about the world to come. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? And wherewithal shall we be clothed? Are questions that press very heavily upon the poor. To a hungry man, Christ is very lovely when he has a loaf of bread in his hand. Our Lord so appeared when he was breaking the bread and fish for the multitude, for even he did not disdain to feed the hungry. And when we can relieve the wants of the destitute, we may be doing a necessary thing to them, and placing them where they may be capable of listening with profit to the gospel of Christ. The other kind of worldliness comes of having too much of this world, or at least of making too much of this world. The gentleman must be fashionable, his daughters must be dressed in the best style, his sons must learn to dance, and so on. This sort of worldliness has been the great curse of the nonconformist churches. Then there is another kind of man who is from morning to night grinding away at the shop. His one business seems to be to put up the shutters and take them down again. He will rise early and sit up late and eat the bread of carefulness so as to make money. What can we do for these covetous persons? How can we ever hope to touch the hearts of these men whose one aim is to be rich, the people who scrape up the half pennies and farthings? Economy is good, but there is an economy that becomes stingy, and that stinginess becomes the habit of these miserly folk. 
Some will even go to chapel because it is the proper and respectable thing, and they hope to gain customers by going. Judas remained unconverted even in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all have some people still among us in whose ears the thirty pieces of silver clink so loudly that the sound of the gospel cannot be heard by them. I may mention one more obstacle to soul winning, that is, the obstacle there is with some men through their habits, their resorts, and company. How can we expect a working man to go home and sit all the evening in the one room that he has to live in and sleep in? Perhaps there are two or three children crying and linen drying and all sorts of things to produce discomfort. The man comes in and his wife is scolding. His children are crying and the linen is drying. What would you do if you were in his place? Suppose you were not Christian men would you not go somewhere or other? You cannot walk the streets and you know that there is a cozy room at the public house with its flashing gaslight or there is the gin palace at the corner where everything is bright and cheerful and where there are plenty of jolly companions. Well now, you cannot hope to be the means of saving men while they go to such places and while they meet with the company that is found there. All the good that they receive from the hymns they heard on the Sabbath is driven away as they listen to the comic songs in the drink shop and all remembrance of the services of the sanctuary is obliterated by the very questionable tales that are told in the bar parlor. Hence, the great mercy of having a place where working men can come and sit in safety or of having a blue ribbon meeting, a gathering where it may not be all singing, nor all preaching, nor all praying, but where there is something of all these things. Here the man is enabled to get out of the former habits which seem to hold him fast, and by and by he does not go to the public house at all, but he has two rooms, or perhaps a little cottage, so that his wife can dry the linen in the back yard, and now he finds that the baby does not cry so much as he used to do probably because his mother has more to give him, and everything gets better and brighter now that the man has forsaken his former resorts. I think a Christian minister is quite justified in using all right and lawful means to wean the people from their evil associations, and it may be well sometimes to do that which seems to be extraordinary if thereby we can by any means win men to the Lord Jesus Christ. That must be our one aim in all that we do. And whatever obstacles may be in our pathway, we must seek the aid of the Holy Spirit that they may be removed, and that thus souls may be saved, and God may be glorified. Chapter 6, page 42 How to Induce Our People to Win Souls I have spoken to you at different times, brethren, about the great work of our lives, which is that of winning souls. I have tried to show you various ways in which we win souls, the qualifications both towards God and towards man of those who are likely to be used in winning souls, the kind of sermons that are most likely to win souls, and also the obstacles in the way of soul winners. Now I should like this afternoon to talk to you upon another part of the subject, that is, how can we induce our people to become soul winners? 
you are aspiring, each of you, in due time to become pastors of churches unless the Lord should call you to be evangelists or missionaries to the heathen. Well, you commence at first as single sowers of the good seed of the kingdom and you go forth scattering from your own basket your own handfuls. You desire, however, to become spiritual farmers and to have a certain acreage which you will not sow entirely yourself, but you will have servants who will aid you in the work. Then to one you will say, Go, and he will go forthwith, or Come, and he will come at once, and you will seek to lead them into the art of mystery, of seed sowing, so that after a while you may have large numbers of persons round about you doing this good work and thus a far greater acreage may be brought into cultivation for the great husbandman. There are some of us who have, by God's grace, been so richly blessed that we have all around us a large number of persons who have been spiritually quickened through our instrumentality, people who have been aroused under our ministry, who have been instructed and strengthened by us, and who are all doing good service for God. Let me warn you not to look for all this at the first, for it is the work of time. Do not expect to get in the first year of your pastorate that result which is the reward of twenty years' continuous toil in one place. Young men sometimes make a very great mistake in the way they talk to those who never saw them until about six weeks ago. They cannot speak with the authority of one who has been as a father among his people, having been with them for twenty or thirty years. Or if they do, it becomes a sort of foolish affection on their part, and it is equally foolish to expect the people to be all at once the same as they might be after they have been trained by a godly minister for a quarter of a century. It is true that you may go to a church where somebody else has faithfully labored for many years and long sown the good seed, and you may find your sphere of labor in a most blessed and prosperous state, and happy will you be if you can thus jump into a good man's shoes and follow the path he has been treading. It is always a good sign when the horses do not know that they have a new driver, and you, my brother, inexperienced as you are, will be a very happy man if that should be your lot. But the probability is that you will go to a place that has been allowed to run almost ruin, possibly to one that has been altogether neglected. Perhaps you will try to get the principal deacon to imitate your earnestness. You are at a white heat, and when you find him as cold as steel, you will be like a piece of hot iron dipped into a pail of water. He may tell you that he recollects others who were at first just as hot as you are, but they soon cool down, and he will not be surprised if you do the same. He is a very good man, but then he is old, and you are young, and he cannot put young heads on old shoulders, even if we were to attempt to do it. Perhaps next you will resolve to try some of the young people. Possibly you can get on better with them. But they do not understand you. They are backward and retiring, and they soon fly off at a tangent. You must not be surprised if this is your experience. Very likely you will have almost everything to do in connection with the work. At all events, expect that it may be so, and then you will not be disappointed if it so turns out. 
It may be otherwise, but you will be wise if you get into the ministry expecting not to find any very good assistance from the people in the work of soul winning. Anticipate that you will have to do it yourself and to do it alone. And begin doing it alone. Sow the seed, tramp up and down the field, always looking to the Lord for the harvest to bless your labor and also looking forward to the time when through your efforts under the divine blessing instead of a plot of land that is apparently covered with nettles or full of stones or weeds or thorns or partly trodden down you will have a well-tilled farm in which you may sow the seed to the best advantage and on which you shall have a little army of fellow laborers to aid you in the service yet all that is the work of time I should certainly say to you do not expect all this at least for some months after you settle down to work revivals if they are genuine do not always come the moment we whistle for them try and whistle for the wind and see if it will come the great rain was given in answer to Elijah's prayers but not even then the first time he prayed and we must pray again and again and again and at last the cloud will appear and the showers out of the cloud wait a while work on plod on plead on and in due time the blessing will be given and you shall find that you have the church after your own ideal but it will not come to you all at once I do not think Mr. John Angle James of Birmingham saw much fruit in his ministry for many years as far as I remember Carr's Lane Chapel was not the place of any great notoriety before he preached there but he kept on steadily preaching the gospel and at last he drew around him a company of godly people who helped to make him the greatest power for good that Birmingham had at that time try to do just the same and do not expect to see all at once when he and other faithful ministers have only been able to accomplish in many years in order to secure this end of gathering around you a band of Christians who will themselves be soul winners I should recommend you not to go to work according to any set rule for what would be right at one time might not be wise at another and that which would be best for one place would not be so good elsewhere sometimes the very best plan would be to call all the members of the church together tell them what you would like to see and plead earnestly with them that each one should become for God a soul winner say to them I do not want to be your pastor simply that I may preach to you but I long to see souls saved and to see those who are saved seeking to win others for the Lord Jesus Christ you know how the Pentecostal blessings was giving when the whole church met with one accord in one place and continued in prayer and supplication the Holy Spirit was poured out and thousands were converted cannot we get together in like manner and all of us cry mightily to God for a blessing that might succeed in arousing them calling them together and earnestly pleading with them about the matter pointing out what you wish them specially to do and to ask of God may be like setting a light to dry fuel but on the other hand nothing may come of it because of their lack of sympathy 
in the work of soul saving. They may say, it is a very nice meeting and our pastor expects a good deal of us and we all wish he may get it and there it will end so far as they are concerned. Then, if that should not succeed, God may lead you to begin with one or two. There is usually some choice young man in each congregation and as you notice deeper spirituality in him than in the rest of the members, you might say to him, Will you come down to my house on such and such an evening that we may have a little prayer together? You may gradually increase the number to two or three godly young men, if possible, or you may begin with some gracious matron who perhaps lives nearer to God than any of the men and whose prayers would help you more than theirs. Having secured their sympathy, you might say to them, Now we will try if we cannot influence the whole church. We will begin with our fellow members before we go to the outsiders. Let us try to be ourselves always at the prayer meetings, to set an example to the rest, and let us also arrange to have gatherings for prayer in our own houses, and seek to get our brethren and sisters to them. You, good sister, can get half a dozen sisters together into your house for a little meeting. And you, brother, can say to a few friends, Could we not meet together to pray for our pastor? Sometimes the most effectual way to burn a house is to do it by pouring petroleum down the middle of it and setting fire to it, as the ladies and gentlemen did in Paris in the days of the Commune and sometimes the shortest method is to light it at the four corners. I have never tried either plan, but that is what I think. I like to burn churches rather than houses, because they do not burn down, they burn up, and keep on burning when the fire is of the right sort. When a bush is nothing but a bush, it is soon consumed when it is set on fire, but when it is a bush that burns on and it is not consumed, we may know that God is there. So is it with a church that is flaming with holy zeal. Your work, brethren, is to set your church on fire somehow. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, 
neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.